Larry Irving was, um, was resolute that we needed to have seating, free seating like this, and because you know, all of you wanted, really wanted free seating, and then we have it, and there's not a single person sitting in the center. <laughs> but that's okay, because we all like to have a table where we can put our food and our drink and have a great time. Um, all right, well, we are going to talk a little bit about Article 12. Um, it is not an easy uh, subject to undertake because the primary focus oftentimes is, are these, we call them the Anabaptists, and uh, there were so many different varieties of them that you can't generally say that they all believe this or that. It, um, but I think what's uh, significant here is that um, you will see characteristics from these sects that are actually common in American culture today. Um, and a lot of times we think um, that we're kind of odd ducks as Lutherans maybe, um, but that's probably because uh, the frontier religious experience in America uh, is something that really was the dominant culture, it, these um, kind of Anabaptist type of sects that uh, developed here in the, in the frontiers of America. You know, many of them, of course, came over from Europe in order to escape persecution. And when they did, they came over with a lot of the assumptions about what religion should be and what it's like. And then, of course, overcame all these Germans and Scandinavians who had come essentially from, I guess you might call it the uh, more traditional churches. And there was a bit of a culture difference between them, an enormous amount of difference between them. But as language disappeared and people went to common languages, as the culture has evolved and developed, probably the dominant American religious landscape uh, is not what we might regard as traditional uh, church landscape, but rather it is this sect landscape, um, the radical individualism in religion. Um, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Oh, dear Lord and Savior, you have given us a marvelous and wondrous gift that in the words of John's Gospel, that we will now, through your under, an understanding of who you are, come to a realization of truth. It is, of course, an impossible thing to think that we can climb up into the mind of God, but you have revealed yourself to us so that we can be a church, not of mere individuals, but a church united in a common confession and with a common understanding of doctrine and your word. Help us, therefore, to be able to see into what's happening in our world today, in our culture, by looking backwards to the great confession that was also made by these formula of Concord authors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, the, um, these designations, this, a lot of this information came from a guy by the name of George Fry, who was one of my professors at the seminary years and years and years and decades and centuries ago. Seems like it anyway. Um, 
the, um, he talks about the four reformations. And we, of course, are going to be very brief. There was a reformation that took place in England. And that reformation, Henry VIII, uh, you know the, the hymn, I am Henry VIII, I am Henry VIII, I am, I am. I got married to the widow next door. She's been married seven times before, and everyone was a Henry. You remember Herman? It wasn't Herman. Herman Herman's Hermits. Yes. Now, that's not, the, that's not the Henry VIII. But Henry VIII, who really wanted to divorce his wife, she was uh, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, Catherine of Aragon, and... Um, the Pope wouldn't let him do it, and he said, fooey with you, and he basically then pulled the entire uh, kingdom of England out of the Roman Catholic Church, and of course, in order to do that, it had to be a church that was latitudinal, that means that there was a broad difference. You can go all the way in the, in the Anglican Church, you could historically kind of go all the way from Baptist all the way to extremely high church, uh, Anglican, almost Roman Catholic practice. It was very broad. And it was, of course, a state church, which meant that the king or the queen were actually the head of the church. That confusion of church and state created its own set of dynamics. And, of course, then they also had to have something that kind of tied them together with glue, and so what they had was they had their, uh, their, their liturgy, which was the thing that kind of defined them as a church. And nothing, I, have to, I do have to say, um, right before I left Connecticut, I went to the, uh, the farewell service for the uh, Episcopalian uh, priest in Norwalk who had become a friend of mine. And um, I have to say that Based upon the liturgy, anybody could have heard that liturgy and gone straight to heaven. Uh, and thank you. For, there's one person sitting now in this. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, Larry thanks you very much. Um, but uh, if you heard the sermon, you would have gone someplace else because there wasn't one iota of gospel at all that was spoken in the sermon. So for... Uh, for the Episcopal Anglican tradition, uh, their liturgy kind of became the, uh, the, the, the center that held the whole thing kind of together. And that Reformation took on a different character. Um, Henry VIII didn't like Martin Luther. Martin Luther really didn't like Henry VIII. There were, um, there were reformers that wanted to kind of be Lutherans in England. And one of them was a guy named Hugh Latimer, and we've got, see, Bill Latimer back there. Uh, we think he's maybe related, although he says that... Um, they didn't have coffee. They didn't have, okay. Well, that, that's why he became a Lutheran, because they didn't have coffee. They, they only have tea. Um, so that Reformation, though, didn't have much of an impact upon the Lutherans, because it was in England, and it was primarily geographically central to, to England. The second one, I, you might call it the Papal Reformation of the Roman Catholic Church, was, um, I guess you might say, a, a rather sometimes maybe even sincere effort to try to be able to pull together 
the Roman Catholic Church, there was a huge amount of corruption that had taken place in the church, a huge amount of abuse. And there were a number of individuals who saw that abuse in the Roman Catholic Church and wanted to stay inside of the Roman Catholic Church. A conciliar tradition. It was an attempt to try to be able to keep the Roman Catholic Church somewhat reformed, but it was always, they wanted to reform on an, almost on a moral basis, and they never quite got to the underlying root of the problem. And the problem was that, that whole doctrine of works righteousness that was always being turned into money. Um, the, um, the third kind of, um, of um, Reformation was, of course, our, what we might describe as our own. It was authored by Martin Luther, began with that whole explosion that took place with the posting of the 95 Theses, uh, a church that was ready and ripe for that, and there were, of course, a great number of people that both hated the, that Reformation and, of course, there were a great number that embraced it with wholeheartedly. Um, then, of course, we have the kind of the break-off um, Reformation, which is the Reformation of John Calvin and Ulrich Swingley. They uh, were the uh, Swiss, but Calvin really was, I guess you might say, probably more French. Uh, we might have the Huguenots that in France that really were kind of um, following in Calvin's footsteps. And of course, a good, not, good portion of Germany eventually kind of slid into Calvinism as an alternative to Lutheranism. And um, Swingley as well in Switzerland, some of the more radical groups. But the fourth kind of Reformation is the one that we're probably the most concerned with relative to Article uh, 12. Uh, who were these? They were these radical people, these Mainly, I guess you might sometimes we, we put them under the umbrella of the Anabaptists. Um, what were some of their characteristics? Um, they, you could, it's almost as though you could not nail them down as to what, there's no cohesive set of beliefs that they had. Um, my neighbor, a former neighbor, um, she, uh, she had been raised as a Lutheran in Fort Wayne, which about half of Fort Wayne probably was Lutheran at one time. And then, of course, she moved away and went to California. And um, out in California, she got into the big box church. And then they came back here, and they were into the big box church. And then her daughter went to college, and somebody asked her, what she believed. And she said, she came back home and she said, you know, we've been going to all these churches, but I have no idea of what it is that we believe. Everyone is different, different emphasis, different promotion. Um, back in those days, they had these small little areas in which there would just be somebody who would sprout up like a weed and he would gather a group of individuals around himself and what he taught and what he believed would be no, it would be radically different from the guy who was 100 miles away. Um, so the Anabaptists just proliferated. Every man was his own preacher. You know, kind of we hear today, you know, somebody starts up in, a, um, in one of those uh, shopping centers and opens up and he starts the Church of the Most Holy Spirit or something like that. And what do they teach and believe? Whatever that guy thinks, they should teach and believe. So 
that tradition was a part of this radical Anabaptist kind of reformation. Um, a guy named Ernst Trelch, um, uh, he uh, made these distinctions between two general types, I guess you might say, of churches at that time. He, of course, was an extremely liberal theologian, but he was a decent historian. He says there were the what we call the church types and then the sect types. Uh, the church types would be that you're kind of your Anglican, Roman Catholic, even the Reformed churches, the Lutheran churches, and they had a rather common perspective on what church was, not, of course, always by any means perfectly united, but they, they saw the state as something that was, you know, God has ordained these authorities. They, they saw it in kind of a relatively positive light. And then, of course, they understood how to be able to kind of merge the difference between, you know, living in a secular society and, you know, how do, how do I as a Christian live in a secular society? Is it okay for me to be able to have a profession? Um, in the old days of the German churches, um, pastors always loved that innkeeper who had the inn right down the street from the church because the Germans would all go to church and then they'd go down and drink beer afterwards, Right? And if they didn't have that place where they could go and drink beer, they wouldn't be so inclined to come to church. So it kind of, you know, one hand always served the other. But he said, well, you know, could you be an innkeeper? Could you be a person who actually sold beer? Well, I mean, Lutherans don't even think twice about that. When I was over in Africa, um, we were talking to uh, the, uh, the deaconesses there. And... Um, and I, and I said something about, you know, somebody drinking beer, and they went, oh, that's of the devil. You can't drink beer and be a Christian? I said, well, what do you think about polygamy? What's wrong with that? Um, you go, what's wrong with polygamy? And drinking beer is of the devil? Now that's kind of this strange tradition that you would find that you could not have a vocation, a job, in some area, you know, if, if you work for the union, if you are a person who, maybe you're a policeman or something like that, you can't do that and be a Christian. This is the sectarian mindset. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. All right. Um, What, uh, what characterizes them? They usually start off by believing that the established churches are, they are a part, they have degenerated, they're apostates from that first century church. You know, that nobody really knows much about the first century church, which is one of the reasons why it is that they like to think that that's what they should be, because you just make yourself into what you think the early church was, and then, of course, you're supposed to be faithful. Whereas those of us who have, you know, 2,000 years now of church history, what are we doing? We're singing hymns that were written in 700. We're using a liturgy that has been with us probably for, in various forms, but a liturgy that's by and large been with us all, going all the way back to probably the original tabernacle in the wilderness. You know, this thing we call tradition. What, what's being handed down to us? 
How often do you not hear that people will think that, you know, those traditional services, you always get, get this, right? Oh, I, I guess I'm, I'm an old fogey. I like to use the hymnal. And I guess I'm just not with it because nowadays people just get up there and we're attracting the young people with those guitars and such. Or oh, you're an old fogey, Bob. I'm an old fogey. We're all old fogies. Do we really want to take that? Or do we say, look, we're a church that's, you know, a couple thousand years old. Is that something that we just take all that stuff and just throw it out the door, get out the old guitar, get Lucy up there and she'll just start rocking and rolling right now? You sure? I'm, I've got a microphone here, Lucy, if you want to sing a little. <laughs> Poor Lucy. She always gets picked on by me. All right. Um, so they, what else here? So everything basically that represents the visible historic church is rejected, and that along with all the tradition. There's, of course, this new age, right? where the church is going to suddenly discover all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and finally the Holy Spirit was going to show up here in our time and our era. We've heard all about this in the United States too, right? Here these people thought that they had the Holy Spirit, and they come to discover that it wasn't until the United States became a country in sometime around the 1920s that the Holy Spirit really did show up. And of course, this is what Brigham Young, or I mean what Joseph Smith taught, right? The Mormons. Joseph Smith believed that everybody was wrong. He was the one who got the truth out there in the woods from God the Father, who was talking to him, separate from Jesus. And in order to be able to preserve that truth and to get away from all the bad people, they had to go all the way out to Utah. Now, I, I was a pastor in Utah, and I'm really mad that you Germans didn't get out there first, as it is one beautiful state. Anyway, they didn't. They went out there to form what? A sect, a, a cult, if you will. And it was an ideal place to do it. Everybody is wrong. And when they show up at your door, by the way, and they say, we're Christians too, while the name Jesus is in our name. We're the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're not Christians at all. They are sex. Now, what else? Number three there. A church can only be made up of saints, but not sinners. The church had to be pure. And so, therefore, you'll oftentimes hear talk about church discipline, right? That we need to get rid of, confront people's lives if they are sinful. Now, we, we do have, there's, there's a certain kind of ring to this, right? We Lutheran pastors, we, you know, this idea that, you know, you don't just have anybody doing anything that they want to and living like that way and so on and so forth, and sometimes you have to confront, right? But when it comes down to it, you know, I, there was, well, this is, Mormonism has a, a lot of this in it. And we used to say, why is it 
You've heard this before. Why is it that you always take two Mormons fishing with you instead of one? Because if you take two, they won't drink all your beer. You guys are a little slow. You drink one, he'll drink all your beer. In other words, he's not being watched. I was telling my, my, my a guy who was a former judge here, he was, we were, um, I was with Sove when she was driving away from the liquor store. Um, and, uh, and, and we knew this guy was going in. And I said, I said, have you heard the latest? I said that the Roman Catholics have now decided that they're going to recognize the Lutherans. And the Lutherans are going to start recognizing the Methodists. And the Mormons are going to start recognizing each other in the liquor store. We figured uh, that non-Mormons in Utah would consume six gallons of alcohol a day if only the non-Mormons drank liquor. And that was just the state stores that were selling liquor. Now, what happens? Well, you enter into a legalistic society. The law, Paul says, stirs up sin. And so if you are using the law to, I guess you might say, constantly harangue people. This is what you should be. You have to be perfect. You have to get rid of your sins. You have to change your life, right? Amazingly, if the law stirs up sin, it actually does one of two things. Either it turns you into a hypocrite so that you give the appearance that what you're doing is something that's perfect, or it actually makes you worse and you run away from the church, and you find yourself going into despair because you could never be what it is that this church wanted you to be. It does one of two things. It always does. And that's why when you, if you go down to a lot of these communities where they have this kind of, you know, the church is a place for only saints and sinners have to leave and, and sinners, people who are not there are sinners. It's a small group of the faithful and so on. What you almost always find, I found this up in northern Minnesota when I got up there. You, you, anybody here from northern Minnesota? Oh, Chuck. Yeah, he, see, that's what I mean. The survival rate of people in northern Minnesota, we only got one here. But nor, northern Minnesota, there were, there were two worlds. There was a church world. Among, these were among the Finns. There was a church world, and there was the bar and the drinking world. And the bar and the drinking world was separate from, very often it would be the husband who would be there, and the wife and the kids might be at church. But eventually, there was always this cleavage that took place in the, in the culture because the law was the abiding thing. We're going to have perfect people in church. So everybody here who is perfect, if you would please raise your hand. Everybody here who is a sinner, please raise your hand. Anybody didn't raise their hand? <laughs> I don't know. He sat in the back for a reason. He was, he was actually beating his chest. Um, no, so th this is what these sects do. Um, number four, only adults are admitted into the church. Why? Because you have to kind of be an adult in order to be able to have a contrived experience. You have to, an, an adult is a person who has to choose to accept Jesus. An adult is a person who has to be able to have some sort of, we, 
you know, like these um, Pentecostal meetings. Have anybody here ever been to a meeting of Pentecostals? Can you speak in tongues? <laughs> you say, say what? That's why you did, because you couldn't, right? Doggone it, they didn't want me to speak German. I don't understand it. The, um, the, the Pentecostal church, I, my sister uh, was for a while, had gotten into the Pentecostal church. And um, Glenn Hubel, who turns out to be the father-in-law of my son, Hans, uh, we got our typical pastor thing, we got our kids together and they got married. Um, anyway, he was a seminarian, and I was a seminarian, and we went to this meeting. And, you know, that was back in the days when I had hair, and it just kind of went straight back after I got there. And they were, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were coming on to people, and they were standing up, and they were speaking in tongues. And they were speaking in these languages, you know. It was just uh, this gibberish, if you will, claiming it was a language. It wasn't. It was just nothing but just social, emotional experientialism. Am I correct? Okay. Did, did your husband save you, or was it? No, I was 12 years old. You were 12? Oh, oh. oh, well, good for you. I'm glad. And here you are today. That's great. Well, we should have you teach this class. Okay, somewhere, where were some of these things? You receive the Holy Spirit. You come to some sort of a... And, the, and I, I should say, number four was not too far away from what it is that C.F.W. Walther and a lot of the Lutherans also were doing in that pietistic culture that they were brought up in when they were over in Germany. You know, most people don't know that when our Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod fathers came over from Germany, they weren't necessarily all that purely orthodox. They started reading Luther when they got here, and they started to realize that their pietistic tendencies were actually rooted in this kind of culture religion. Um, uh, it's hard to imagine, but uh, it, 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 it is something that, that you have to come to grips with if you're going to live in America because everything is being driven by, you know, when did you accept Jesus? Um, Sove put in an application out to Traders Point out here uh, this Traders Point Church that has a school, I thought maybe she'd sub out there. And the big question, when did you accept Jesus as your Savior? Could you scratch it out and say, when did Jesus accept me? Maybe that, they wouldn't understand that. Yeah, um, he did when I was baptized. And I was, you know, eight days old or ten days after my birth. God accepted me. And that, that's something that they cannot understand. Number five, it's always at the church of individuals. Radical individualism is a hallmark of American culture, right? Most of us all who are sociologists would know, you know, um, who is it, Tocqueville? Yeah, there have been, there's a tradition in America of the rugged individual. And that made this kind of religion something that kind of grew up easily in our country. What is that? We hear it all the time. What are you doing in your churches practicing close communion? I believe in Jesus, and I should be able to go to the Lord's Supper if I want to. 
It's between God and me. It's not between you and me and God. Where does this come from? Well, the idea, it's kind of rooted in Reformed theology. The idea that, that God just kind of deals with me directly. I don't have any re- responsibility of relationship with anybody else here. I don't have any obligations to you. And I certainly don't have to tell a pastor what it is that I believe. In spite of the fact that Paul says that if you eat or drink without discerning the presence of Christ, that you might eat or drink condemnation to yourself. If you don't know what you're doing. Is it possible that maybe, just maybe, this is not a just this between me and God, but actually that, first of all, through the Scriptures, and then in my doctrinal beliefs, I am seeing where I find unity with others. They say, well, why is it that they wouldn't want to? You know, what do you believe? What does this church teach? They don't believe that it's possible to arrive at some kind of common belief, set of beliefs. Now, it started to, they, they wanted to, they needed to in America, and they would say, well, we, don't, we can't really agree on baptism with these churches. We can't really agree on the Lord's Supper, but we can agree on the fundamentals. And guess what that became? Funda mentalism. Fundamentalism in this country is kind of an invented term, but it kind of goes back to those days when there was a fight over the Bible and there were these fights in our country over you know, liberalism that was going this direction and the conservatives who were holding on and evolution is being taught here and we've got to stand our, stand our ground here and talk about creationism. You say, well, how do we unify ourselves? How do you get together with the Baptists and how do you get together with those uh, conservative church bodies that want to be able to maintain the authority of Scripture? Well, what you do is you say, what are the fundamentals? Do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yes. Do we believe that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do we believe that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven? Yes, right? Fundamentals. But you say, what about, say, for instance, the means of grace, the Lord's Supper, baptism? Oh, no. You don't have to worry about that. That's not important. Oh, Lutherans are going, wait a minute. Because if you deny the power of the Word in baptism and you believe that a person has to have an experience before, before it can be validated, you are essentially saying that you're a co-participant with God in your salvation. How can you go from Roman Catholicism that teaches works righteousness now to a fundamentalism that turns experience into what it is that the Roman Catholics did over here to save themselves? And so Lutherans never really found themselves walking in the pathway of fundamentalism because, why? Because you can't, the gospel, the sacraments are actually a part of the gospel itself. Okay, what else here? Church of individuals uh, means that these are individuals who are separate from the world. The... the, um, out in, uh, the, in uh, Connecticut, the, um, the local Congregationalist Church doesn't, uh, they call it the, what is it, Bill, the gathering, no, the gathering, what is that word? 
Yeah, they, well, they, they have, that's, but they have a, they, they say that the church is gathered. That in other words, uh, what you're, these are individuals who have come to gather together, not um, that the church is kind of born out of water and the Spirit. It's, it's, a, it's a different way of speaking about the church. you know what I'm talking about? I, I always like it when Walt sits here, because then I, I don't have to go, what, what, what's, in it? what's the answer, Walt? <laughs> he sits closer. He can just whisper in my ear. Um, oftentimes small. Uh, if you go down, drive down uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, imagine all that territory that's south of where you guys are down there in Evansville. You see a, a church every half a mile. And it's just prolif- proliferated. And small is where you get the really good stuff. They're usually obsessed with what we might call some kind of theological emphasis that's, that's not, that's weird. Like, for instance, they will tell you, your baptism as a Lutheran is invalid because of the fact that you weren't immersed. You have to be immersed, otherwise it's not valid. Well, first of all, they don't even believe that baptism does anything. It's your commitment supposedly to God and their theology. But then they come up with this kind of, a, somebody was saying, well, you had, back in those days, they had to be immersed. I was walking down by Eagle Creek Reservoir, or the Eagle Creek Creek the other day, and looking at it, and it has two, it has two levels. One is that it's a torrential flood uh, whenever it is raining, and the other is, is that it's, a, it's about that deep. So you go, the Jordan River was exactly like this. Either the Jordan River was something that was so thin you'd have to stand and it would go up to your ankles and you'd have to be able to do this to be baptized, right? Or it would be a torrential flood and you couldn't step into the waters at all. There was no such thing as a nice, gentle, rolling Rhine River all the way down to the, um, the Dead Sea. And so the, when people come along and they say, Oh, yes, you know, everybody had to be immersed by Jesus. There's nothing scriptural at all that tells us that there was immersion going on. Now, there was something in the temple that was somewhat similar to that. And we don't necessarily object, do we, that baptism can signify drowning the old Adam, so therefore we don't mind if we would take and put that baby even underwater. That would be nice. But it's these people who came along and said, it's not valid unless you've been immersed. And we say, in true German fashion, we'll never immerse because you said we have to. (laughs) So, they also usually have some sort of obsession about uh, participating, either not participating in state activities you know how the Quakers are, and so on and so forth. And then this idea that you have to segregate yourself from those bad European Christians who are uh, just living their ordinary daily lives. Um, if you go down again, uh, down a little bit further south, oftentimes what you find is that people will be saying, uh, Catholics, they're not Christians, are they? And then they say, Lutherans. What are Lutherans? Aren't they Catholics? Catholics aren't Christians. Lutherans aren't Christians. We've got to stay away from them. 
what, this comes straight out of that whole Anabaptist stuff that took place over there in Europe. And we've got our own ways of being able to describe that. But they'll do all kinds of stuff. Somebody, um, we talked about the snake handlers, you know. Wouldn't it be great if I did snake handling? You, you could get a pastor every other year that way. They, um, the, uh, just these weird things that they come up with that, um, that you, just, you just can't quite figure out where they get it, but they, they fasten in on it and they use it. We, we had um, Church of Christ, uh, you probably have seen, they, they don't use organ music, they don't use any instruments for music. Everybody sings a cappella, which can be actually extremely beautiful. But I remember playing basketball with a kid who was Church of Christ. He couldn't wear shorts. He had to wear sweatpants, long sweatpants, so that his legs were totally covered. Can you imagine what it's like wearing sweatpants in a basketball game when you sweat? It's like rivers running down your leg on the inside from all the... You can't wear shorts. You can't wear, you know, even something that's lower like that. Um... And then they fasten on these things. And then when, see, when they look at everybody who's got those shorts on, they, they say to themselves, look at how bad the world is. And we think, how can that be? Well, oh, we've got a hurry here. We've only got, well, we'll go a little, a little faster. There were, the, um, the formula kind of divides into three categories the people that they, in Article 12, uh, found themselves uh, uh, kind of condemning, if you will. Uh, some of those Anabaptists, you re might recognize those names, Andreas Karlstadt, he actually had been a friend of Luther, um, and when Luther was in the Wartburg Castle, while well, he was um, kind of hiding out in the Wartburg Castle, uh, Karlstadt decided, I think, that he was going to become the new CEO of Lutheranism. And he and the Swickall prophets got real radical. They decided that all those images in the churches should be destroyed because that was idolatry. And he took off all of his vestments and his robes, and he wanted to be a man of the people, and essentially throwing out everything that we have talked about here, traditions and liturgies and hymns and organs and statues and stained glass windows. They went in and they just simply started destroying all of this stuff. And had it not been for Luther coming out of hiding and going back to Wittenberg and basically taking these guys on, the, the entire Reformation may have evaporated um, when, this, when, when these Anabaptists got control. They were also kind of behind that whole Peasants' Revolt. And um, in that Peasants' Revolt, what did I say? Over 100,000 people were killed in the Peasants' Revolt. Can you imagine? hundred in America, 100,000 people being killed. Just unbelievable. Thomas Munzer, Menno Simons, how many of you uh, know about Mennonites? Mennonites, right? You know? They've got a little bit different than the Amish. Um, little, uh, I guess you might say a, few, a little bit more freedom uh, than the Amish. 
but still today, preserving that Anabaptist tradition. My, I've got a, a cousin of mine that sells chicken feed to the Hutterites up in South Dakota and North Dakota. Um, they're like a little bit like the Amish. They've got communities and they intermarry among themselves. When I was a little boy, I remember going out and their, their barns were just immaculate, not a single bit of, they had uh, milk cows and such. They're raising chickens uh, as well. And they have a total communal lifestyle. Everything is, belongs to the whole community, the leaders of the community. My brother-in-law or my cousin will go out there and, and uh, the head of the community will say, you know, uh, my wife needs a new washing machine. That's all he has to, has to say. So the next time he's there, he brings a washing machine. And then he buys, they, they only buy their chicken feed from him. I mean, it's kind of like advertisement. So this kinda, these people are kind of strange. Well, the men, when they get married, they have to grow their beards up until that time. They're not like, they're not like the, uh, the Amish where they have this ring a spring a ring a ding a spring a ding a thing where they all go run off and, and live wild, promiscuous lives for two years. You've heard about that. Um, but, um, but they're a little different. And they, uh, they, he brought them back to Germany because they wanted to see some of these um, buildings that they were erecting uh, for chick feeding chickens back in Germany. And here they, 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 all spoke, they all speak German. They speak, actually speak Plattdeutsch, low German. And uh, they went back to Germany and they couldn't believe it. Nobody in Germany could understand them. Their language... They had kept the language that used to be in Germany. Un, uh, un, it, it's the same language. But when they went back, the language in Germany had changed so much that they could not be understood back there. It's really kind of a fascinating thing. But anyway, these, this, this, these, these communities live on. You're going to see it. All right? Um, if you ever have heard the story of the city of Munster and what happened there in 1533, it's, it's, it's so unbelievable, you'll, you'll never, I mean, you just can't, you cannot believe what happened there, how they took over the city, how eventually, I guess it was Philip of Hesse that eventually um, uh, they, they came and basically had to destroy the city in order to be able to uh, stop this movement, but they, the kingdom of God was supposed to come to Munster. How, we've got a whole bunch of people here uh, from uh, Seymour, uh, Columbus, raise your hands. There, there, there are two. There are two of them. They, th this is what the Anabaptists looked like. Um, <laughs> no, not really. They, but where the, where a lot of the a lot of the ancestors of those people came from was right around that area of Munster, as well. They were they were farmers and such, just uh, on this side, the west side of, of Hanover. Um, it was quite the thing. Um, what was it that they, were, what these radicals were opposed to? Always remember this. They dis absolutely despised the means of grace, that is, baptism, Lord's Supper, the Word. They absolutely est uh, hated established clergy. Um, if you have not gone through the uh, secret marriage ceremonies of the Mormons in their temples. 
um, when I was a pastor out in Utah, I was very afraid to wear this collar. I would go out to a grocery store and people would shrink back in fear at me because when they got married in the temple, there was a play. I guess now they, it, they turn on, it's like a motion picture, but they used to have a play. And a man would come out wearing a collar and he would be bought off by the devil in this play. So that when they saw you, it was automatically you were a servant of Satan. Now, um, that, makes, that made this a little difficult to wear out there. Um, what's that? Or a cross, yes. Yes. Actually, actually, it, it, actually, all Mormons are vampires. <laughs> I just, not everybody knows that. Um, so that's why I, I bought Solve a garlic neck, a garlic necklace when, <laughs> for Mother's Day. Um, so we'd be okay. All right, well, um, we don't have um, a whole lot of time here, but what are some of these characteristics? Well, this Anabaptist thing meant you had to be baptized again for the second time if you came into their church. So they would not recognize the validity, if you will, of a baptism. Um, the question comes up, we have new members, uh, Clint here, today, and Amanda back there. Um, but if they came from a Roman Catholic church, we would say, do we rebaptize them? And the answer would be, no. He didn't wear the clothes for it anyway. Yeah. We're pure white there. We got a big swimming pool up in front there for you, Clint. Um, no, because we say what? That the power in baptism, power is in the word, and God works through that word where there's a Trinitarian baptism. Do we rebaptize Mormons? Yes. Would we rebaptize a Jehovah's Witness? Would we baptize a Muslim? Yeah. All, all of these churches or denominations or sects or whatever they might be, if they deny the triumph God, we would actually not, we would not accept their baptism. However, um, these groups, by saying that you have to be rebaptized, if your children are going out to a church that demands that you get rebaptized, they are telling you that your baptism here is invalid, that this is actually a church of the Antichrist. So bear that in mind if they ever come and say, I want to get rebaptized. It means that they're denying their own baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, Paul says. So, that's one of the things. They, of course, deny the efficacy of infant baptism. So, little babies, if, they, if, you, if you deny infant baptism, what other doctrine are you denying? The doctrine of original sin. And it's, it's, the, math, the math is not difficult. Paul says that where sin is, there also is death. Can a baby die? 
Therefore, a child is sinful. And if we call it original or actual sin, a child is sinful. So therefore, if you say that a child does not need to be baptized as a state of perfection, the so-called baptism, even in the Mormon church, the baptism ends up becoming a time when you are accountable. And if you become accountable in your baptism, it's exactly the opposite of what we teach about baptism. Because in our baptism, God takes away our accountability, right? He pardons us. He forgives us. He makes us his children. He promises to forgive us every day of our lives, all the way till we get to heaven. He gives us all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if that baptism now becomes a baptism of accountability, it actually is a baptism to condemnation, not salvation. Now you're accountable for your sins. You better get to be perfect. And that's what the Schwenkfelders, they believed that the ministers had to be perfect, which has really been my comfort that I'm a Lutheran. Yeah, you have to be perfect or it invalidates whatever it is that has been said, done, preaches, or practiced. It's actually an old Pelagian heresy. And then, of course, um, this rationalism, which now became the, the, the coming danger that was going to face the church. It starts off, it, was, it started off in, a, in a, um, this, we might call it this anti-Trinitarianism. And this found root, they, they, the Calvinists killed them if they were anti-Trinitarians, and the Lutherans killed them, and the Catholics killed them. And so they did, however, find some sort of tolerance in Poland, and then also in Romania, in a place called Transylvania. Now, I know you think that only Mormons lived in Transylvania. We're working on it here. Um, uh, but actually, Transylvania, uh, there were uh, a huge German settlement in Transylvania. They called them the Siebenbergen. Seven German cities in Transylvania that were settled by these Germans that came out of Germany and relocated there. And it was actually a highly tolerant society. It was kind of what you might call the San Francisco of the, its day. And... Um, and, they, and so Unitarianism found root there because of the toleration. They, they had kind of a principle of religious toleration. I'd like, I think we should take a heritage tour there. Would anybody like to go to Transylvania? Yeah, I think so. Wait a minute. I didn't see enough hands to make a trip. Okay, let's keep, keep them up. The, um, uh, we talked about Arthur Just. Arthur Just actually went back to Transylvania and found his relatives back there in one of those uh, cities, which is kind of cool. All right, and then last of all, we've got a last, a last minute here. Um, this led to eventually to what we call deism, kind of the early American founders like Thomas Jefferson, who everybody thinks is so great, but he was a deist, and uh, probably even Benjamin Franklin, a deist, and Unitarianism, uh, which took root in America. Um, you've always heard what happens if you cross a Unitarian with a Jehovah's Witness. You get somebody who knocks on your door, but he doesn't know what to say. 
Unitarians don't believe in it. I mean, that, okay, you guys are, I'm totally out of jokes. Uh, that's why you're going to need a new pastor. <laughs> All right, uh, Amanda, let's start with you. Come forward. Now, this is a girl from Laporte, Indiana. And she assures me that she was a part of the Mecklenburgian Mecklenburg. Oh, I don't know where though. You you don't want to tell them about that? You can. Well, um, <laughs> well why, don't, why don't why don't you just tell everybody who you are and how you got here and what your background is and what you do now? Okay. Uh, <laughs> my name is Amanda Peters. I. Um, Grew up sort of in Lafayette, Indiana. My parents are from Laporte, Indiana. Um, my grandparents are elders at St. John Lutheran in Laporte, which is where my parents are from. Uh, and what do you do? Oh, I am a public accountant. Uh, I work in assurance. How did you find our church? Uh, through LCMS Church Locator. <laughs> okay, which a good a good place to find churches. Um, and uh, and where have you, you went to school? Where uh, I went to school at Purdue University. Okay, well, I'm sorry about that. Um, I, I'm just gonna take that back. Um, well. Um, uh, Monty Weimer wants me to make sure that you receive this. This will be your opportunity. Since you've been received into membership, you'll have the opportunity to participate in our May 30th call meeting. Okay? okay? And very nice to have you here, and I'm sure everybody's going to greet you as well. Clint, you want to come on up here? Clint is... Uh, is by himself, but he has a wife that was sitting next to him, and now you can give us a whole rundown about uh, your history and background. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my wife, Miranda, and I have lived here for 15 years, and uh, Miranda is from the Fort Wayne area originally. I'm from Warsaw in northern Indiana. Um, I, uh, well, I'm currently a stay-at-home dad studying, uh, preparing to go to law school, but um, I, I was a, a, an auditor in what you'd call the subprime mortgage industry. Um, and that disappeared. I wish, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in pretty much every facet of that. Um, I, um, I, was, I grew up in the Assembly of God uh, denomination. Um, my mom's side, my dad's side, was Pentecostal. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> but we, we, we didn't handle snakes, though. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's kind of my background. I, uh, I went to the University of Chicago for undergrad. I went to IU for my MBA. Uh, very happy to be here. I'm very sorry that I'll be missing more um, uh, we're, we're going to have new members Sunday next Sunday but he wasn't going to be here so we wanted to be able to yeah our, our um, nephew will be uh, getting confirmed next weekend actually up in Fort Wayne 
Okay, that's great. And family-wise, you have a daughter? Uh, our daughter, uh, Kelsey, is 10. She's uh, finishing up fourth grade at Stonegate Elementary, and um, uh, she's in Sunday school right now. We are, and uh, she, Kelsey, has been attending our Vacation Bible School over a number of years, and she is the biggest hugger um, <laughs> of all the kids. Um, there's, uh, we, we wouldn't let her go, but she's... she's we're trying to break her from that. But, uh. <laughs> well, uh, pastors need affirmation every once in a while, so it's, it's, that's a good thing. So anyway, well, welcome to our congregation. And we'll, thank you. Okay. Um, well, we see the, uh, the other John Silverberg family has arrived here, and I would imagine that this probably is a... A Mother's Day gift, is that right? Yes, okay. Well, um, thank you all very much, and a blessed Mother's Day to you. I, I hope that uh, all of you are greatly honored. When are you going to have that, babe? Two weeks now? Okay, we don't, we don't <laughs> keep looking at her here and wondering, when is it going to happen? But, um, uh, when we... We are living in a, in a, in a culture today that, um, that certainly does not uh, recognize the miracles of children in birth. Um, I always liked what Professor Marquardt once said. He said, if a farmer ever had a tractor and it could actually give birth to a tractorlet, all the media would be there and it would be the greatest miracle in all of creation that a tractor could actually reproduce itself. But when a baby is born, and it is a far, far, far greater miracle, we sometimes miss the wonder of that, the miracle of God's creation. So thank you, mothers, for all that sacrifice and love that you brought to your children and the life that you gave to them. And I hope and pray that God will bless you richly for what you have done. And I uh, think since every one of us has a mother, even if you don't have kids, every one of us has a mother. And praise be and thanks be to God that we are here today because of them. Well, that's enough of me. Let's close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen. <laughs>